Now, I'm excited to introduce our next speaker to you because uh, we've wanted to have him here for a while, and uh, it, it has lined up this year to be able to do that. And uh, Anthony Mathenia has pastored Christ Church uh, since 2011. He was raised in West Tennessee and served as a full-time missionary in Addis Ababa, which means new flower. So I, I just found that out, so it is not my, uh, I did not know that before, but uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Anthony now lives in Christiansburg, Virginia with his wife, Hannah, and their seven children. And uh, I have had the privilege of spending a couple of meals with Anthony. It's been a true blessing to, to just get to know him briefly uh, in those times, but I've been encouraged by his kindness and warmth, and I know you're going to be encouraged by his preaching today. Uh, you may uh, recognize him if you have gone through the study, Behold Your God, because that is where I first saw him. He was one of the feature pastors, I think on the first one, right? The, both of them. Okay, so both of them. So, um, and that is, that is a great study. If you have not been through that, we would encourage you uh, to go through that study, just a truly God-exalting Bible study. And uh, so we are delighted to have Anthony here, if you would give him a warm welcome this morning. So. Thank you, Ron. Thank you all. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, I do trust that for those on the front row, it will be a drier experience than at SeaWorld. Uh, I'll try to keep everything inside here. Um, you may not recognize me from the first Behold Your God because I've aged quite a bit since then. Um, I, I was the kid among the bunch um, back then, and that was quite, quite a while ago. Um, I would like to consider uh, the power of the cross, which is a wonderful theme for a conference in our day. I would like to consider the power of the cross proclaimed uh, specifically uh, with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we will read a portion of the text in just a moment. Let's pray again once more. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would grant us grace, both as I preach it and as we sit under it, uh, that you will accomplish your purposes, that it will not return void, and that you will bring about salvation among the lost and sanctification among your children and maturation among your church, that you would advance and expand your kingdom through your preached gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, I think the theme of the power of the cross is a wonderful consideration for a conference to give some attention to this concept of the power of the cross. Because I think if we're honest and we back up and consider Christianity in our day, in our culture, all around us, and if we ask the question, with any measure of integrity at all, does anything about Christianity, Christianity in our day appear to be marked by power, most of us are going to have to honestly say, I don't see a lot of power being manifest, at least not in a tangible way. Ooh. Why is that? Because when we read the New Testament, it's, there are a plethora of examples 
of power being demonstrated through the gospel, specifically through Christ and his cross. But as we assess Christianity in our day, Jesus and his cross has become a convenient addition to self-made religion that produces half-hearted Christianity. And we live in that culture. The tossing, turning, unsteady, loyalty, lacking version of Christianity fits in with our culture. And so it blends quite well. But it's not biblical. The aimless approach that many professed Christians in our day take towards life, headed nowhere and void of any steadfastness or endurance, that approach will succeed in getting nowhere and failing to endure. We are far too easily satisfied. We are content, too content with knowing so little about Christ and his cross. Well, others of us are prone to pack in truth and knowledge at amazing rates, seemingly astronomical rates, yet never seem to actually live on or apply the truths that we appear to be pursuing so diligently. And this assessment of Christianity in our culture exposes dangerous temptations for us all. There is a danger that we face of agreeing with a list of truths about God and about the gospel, yet living on none of them. That's a danger for us. There's a danger in us affirming on paper or in theory biblical doctrine that is true, yet our methods in our lives oftentimes are left unaffected by the affirmation even after the affirmation of the biblical truth. There's a dangerous temptation of adhering to a certain set of doctrines or beliefs, but in practice, those doctrines and beliefs are unrecognizable. And really, we could go on and on. But I think it will suffice to simply sum up all of these situations and circumstances with regard to Christianity and our culture by saying or noting that there is something besides Christ and his cross at the core of our culture's version of Christianity. Something other than Jesus. Something other than his glorious person. Something other than his saving work. Something other than Christ and his cross. He's been replaced Replaced with morality or piety, intellectualism or ethics, religious zeal and clever ideas or trendy approaches or self-interest or self-help or psychoanalysis or social justice concerns or entertainment. Again, we could go on and on. And all of these things aren't bad, not at all, but they are not Christ. They are not the cross of Christ. They aren't his person and his work. They will not suffice. They will not endure to the end. Nothing other than Jesus and his glorious person, nothing other than Christ and his cross will suffice and endure to the end. Let's look together at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth 
picking up in verse 18 of chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, and I'll read through chapter 2, verse 5. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world to despise, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I determined, Paul writes, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that your faith will rest on the power of God. That's what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth. So for us, if this Christ is not the focus and the center of our Christianity, of our life, of our churches, then it is not Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. Oh, that we might be a people that are done, finished with our culturally acceptable substitutes of religion. Whatever else we resolve to do or not do in life, we must not give in to the status quo of Christless churchianity that pervades our religious culture. We must pursue knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. May we, in considering the power of the cross, determine to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
May we, in considering the power of the cross, pursue being more intimately acquainted with Jesus Christ than anyone else or anything else. May we, in considering the power of the cross, determine to live in light of the gospel of God with our whole hearts. May the apostles' words to Corinth here become our words to one another. I determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The church that was established at Corinth, this church, your local church, every local church was established by the Lord to worship and to glorify God by proclaiming the gospel to the world and by being the steward of the means of grace for the sanctification of the saints through the upholding and propagating of God's word. As individual members of local churches, as members of the body, we work together in the spirit and in love for mutual edification of the whole body locally and the whole body globally for the purpose of shaping God's people collectively into the perfect image and stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were created and saved to worship and glorify God. Which begs the question, or encourages us to at least take serious consideration, would heaven, would heaven's crowd recognize our lives as being lives of worship? Even when we gather together, what we're doing, would heaven recognize it as the worship and glorifying of God that we were created for? A.W. Tozer said, it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. And this phenomenon that Tozer wrote about decades ago is still a reality in our day. Evidenced all around by the nonsensical attempts that churches make, churches make to gather a crowd. If our purpose is to worship and glorify God, then we as God's people ought to consider what he has to say about worshiping him. And he's given us a book as our guide. He's provided all that we need to know about who he is, what our needs are, and how we ought to approach him and worship him. He's given us a guide in order that we might regulate our lives and regulate our worship. And though the guide is wonderful, there's something even better than the guide that he's given, and it's the goal, because the goal is a person. The goal is this Christ and him crucified. So on the one hand, the guide is good, but the goal is even better. I mean, we're here this morning opening up the guide in order that we might meet with him. We have to be careful not to stop short of the goal, being satisfied with the right guide. We can't just run around saying we're people of the book. The, the, the book tells us about him. He's a person, and he's created us to worship him. So let's attempt to condense it all down and look at the passage here. But before we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to back up and consider the city of Corinth and Paul's ministry prior to coming to Corinth. So we'll start 200 years before the letter's written, before Paul comes to Corinth. 
Corinth as a city was completely destroyed two centuries prior to Paul's arrival. Completely leveled by the Romans because the Corinthians refused to bow to Roman rule. And so they were leveled. Corinth was known for its immorality. It was a very ungodly city. We know cities like that that come to mind when we think about cities that are known for their immorality and their sin. It was a wealthy city. It was located between two seaports. And a hundred years after the city was completely flattened, Julius Caesar was the Roman general, and he rebuilt Corinth and made it a Roman colony. So they eventually did come around to bowing to Roman rule. It just took them a hundred years to get there, and they had to be flattened and rebuilt. Now Corinth, as a result, is a wealthy and immoral city, and it's also arrogant because they've rebuilt, and in their minds, they're doing well. That's the city before Paul arrives. Now, let's consider Paul before he arrives. Corinth wasn't the first place Paul went to minister. If we look at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul shows up in Philippi. And remarkable things happened. The Spirit of God came down, and Lydia's heart was opened there in Acts 16 to respond to God's word. And the fortune-telling slave girl that was walking around and badgering Paul for days is dealt with, and Paul commanded the evil spirit to come out of her. And profit from her fiascos ceased, which resulted in her masters accusing Paul and Silas of throwing the city into confusion. And Luke records for us in Acts 16, verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. And Paul moves on down the road from Philippi to Thessalonica. Acts 17, he went to them in the Thessalonians, and for three Sabbaths, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But, but the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar as a result of the gospel being preached. So Paul moves on down the road to the Bereans. And the brethren there immediately, pardon, from Thessalonica, the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue. And when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds now, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. So, he's from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea and now to Athens. And there in the sermon, the familiar sermon on Mars Hill, Paul was reasoning in the synagogue initially with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present, saying this, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man. He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. From Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. And it's from Athens that Paul went to Corinth. 
So you're getting a little bit closer to the story that we're looking at in the text. Now, surely we have to think, from Paul's perspective, at this point in his ministry, surely he realizes that his approach is not having tons of success. It was unsuccessful from a a worldly standpoint, from being able to stay and plant and establish in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens. He's He's causing problems everywhere he goes. Surely he's going to wake up and not attempt the same worn-out biblical method again. He's landed in prison. He's been beaten and mocked. So surely his apostolic expertise is going to play a role. And before going to this great city of Corinth, surely he's going to revisit his church planting manual and soften his message or change his methods concerning how to reach immoral, self-indulgent, proud people that are in Corinth. I mean, there, there are lots of different approaches he could take. He could show up and really harp on the law of God, give an extra focus of the Ten Commandments and require people to live in that way. He, he could pound the Corinthians with principle-based externals about how they should clean up their lives. He could go into great detail with regard to all the Old Testament laws that they are forsaking. He may even recognize, well, this place, the the family has really been under attack. They're in shambles. So he could go in and focus on centralizing the family. He could teach proper child education techniques in order for them to be fixed and be more pleasing to God. All kinds of options are on the table when it comes to ministry. And anything other than just Jesus, would make Paul's life more bearable. Anything other than Christ and his cross. But as Paul goes in Acts chapter 18, we see Paul's reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And then Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia. Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, Paul shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And Paul settled there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. So Paul doesn't go with a different approach. He goes in with the same worn-out biblical approach, the same message, preaching the power of the cross, preaching Christ, his death, and his resurrection. And he isn't initially received. They resisted and they blasphemed, but he pressed on and God comes to Paul and he reassures Paul of his plan for him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He reassures Paul of his plan to save many people among the Corinthians. He reassures Paul that he would be with him as he continues proclaiming the truths about Jesus and his gospel. Which brings us then to this letter to 1 Corinthians. And you know that The letter of 1 Corinthians that Paul writes is primarily 
to deal with problems that exist within this church. But before Paul begins handling the issues at hand, we're giving a glimpse, we're given a glimpse into Paul's understanding of how a New Testament church should operate. We're given a glimpse into Paul's approach to ministry. And we are given a really helpful picture of how to penetrate a culture that is so ungodly, immoral, and uninterested. Now, I want to pause there just for a moment to say there are wonderful patterns of how to do ministry in the Scriptures, and we have one of them here from the Apostle Paul. But poor patterns with regard to doing ministry are also aplenty throughout the Scripture. God has given us lots of ways to not worship Him. He's made it clear. Listen to Leviticus 10. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on them and offered strange fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them. Now, we live in a day where people would read that and say, well, he didn't say not to. But that's not the way we approach worshiping God. We are not free to do anything and everything that, that we're not forbidden to do in the Scriptures. God has spelled out exactly how we ought to worship Him. And we do not veer to the right or to the left. We don't go over usurping or attempt to go under subverting in any way. We do what He has said. We seek to arrange our lives, our ministries, our churches, our families based on what God has said in His Word. We're not free to devise our own strategies of ministry, nor to determine our own methods of doing ministry. So Nadab and Abihu, they placed incense in the fire pan. They offered strange fire, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I'll be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. To devise or concoct some novel idea about worship or evangelism or discipleship in our day is tantamount to offering strange fire before the Lord in the days of Nadab and Abihu. Another helpful pattern to avoid at all cost. 2 Samuel 6, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, to bring them up from there, to bring up from there the ark of God. So they're transporting the ark of the covenant. The Philistines have had it. They place the ark, verse 3 of 2 Samuel 6 says, on a new cart to transport it. So they brought the cart with the ark of God. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord because they've gotten the ark back and defeated the Philistines. But when they came to the threshing floor, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Here's David. Attempting to use the enemy's tactics. That's how the Philistines carried the ark. They just put it on something with wheels and rolled it right along because it was smooth. But that's not the way God had 
spelled out in the scriptures that his people ought to move and transport the ark. They were to shoulder it. And you can imagine, we can imagine right now going over a rough threshold. Is it going to be safer on something that's rolling across a rough threshold or safer on shoulders that can just step right across the safe? It's, as, it's almost like God knew what he was talking about. And it's that way throughout the scriptures when he commands us how to worship him and how to arrange our lives and our churches and our ministries. What we see happening here, David was attempting to use the enemy's tactics without the enemy's expertise. We are so often guilty of this as Christians in our culture. We offer some sloppy substitute or cheesy imitation, implementing the ways of the world without the means of the world. Philistine methods for transporting the ark must not be used for true Israelite work. Our world's methods must not be used for true Christian work. Pagan philosophy must not be implemented by the saints of God. Sure, rolling the ark along, especially over long distances, was much easier than shouldering it. But ease cannot be our measuring stick. Never once are we encouraged to follow Christ because it's going to be easy. But, but we, again, products of our culture, we crave convenience. We crave simplicity. We crave ease. But pragmatism has no place in Christianity, in Christian ministry especially. Both of these patterns, Nadab and Abihu and then David, they ignored the mandate of God's word. And neither pattern gives evidence of any concern to please God or to honor him. Nadab and Abihu coming up with their own ideas about worship and ministry. David and others looking around at others' methods that seem to be working. May God help us to avoid unhelpful patterns and learn from them and seek to know what he has said in his word. What does he say about how we live our lives and the choices that we make and how we arrange our families and our churches our own lives. Now we can contrast these really unhelpful patterns with the wonderful pattern that we have from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. The first 17 verses we didn't read, God has, ri- God has recorded for us the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth saying, I thank God for the work that he's done in you. Now, I I know that even though God has worked mightily, there are factions and divisions that are popping up. Paul goes on to say, I'm so glad I didn't contribute to to that by baptizing very many of you. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach. And then he goes on to say, he sent me to preach, but not to preach in cleverness. He didn't send me to preach using strategic methods or culturally relative schemes. He just sent me to preach and to preach the gospel to preach Christ and Him crucified. Paul is absolutely convinced that the gospel and the gospel alone is the wisdom and the power of God. There is no wisdom outside of God. There is no power outside of God. He is the source of all wisdom. He is the source of all power. He Himself is the all-wise, omnipotent God. And the opening chapters here in 1 Corinthians reveal, 1 Corinthians reveal this to us, that that's where Paul is. He literally says, all I came to you with was the gospel. I didn't bring anything else. I don't have any tricks. I don't have any gimmicks. I have nothing to offer. I don't even have a winsome personality. 
but I've got the gospel, and it is sufficient for you all, Corinthians. It's all I had, he goes on to say. And things haven't changed. It's all I had in the beginning when I came, and now I'm writing to you to say things. I don't have anything new. I haven't found some more pragmatic or easier way. It is all I'll ever have. We must, taking cues from Paul here, avoid wasting our time considering all the shifting cultural trends and be certain that we are relative only to God and to the real spiritual needs of mankind. It really simplifies our approaches in evangelism and and reaching the lost when we see that we don't have to be relative to the culture around us. We have enough in common with them. We're in Adam. That's enough. We are sinners like they are. And if Christ is sufficient to save me and you, Christ is sufficient to save the most wicked and heinous sinner you can imagine. The nature of man and of sin, along with the nature of the gospel, demand that we apply Paul's words here. We must come to grips in our minds and in our hearts with the fact that our communities, the next generation, the unreached peoples around the globe, They will never find Jesus attractive or be impressed with the gospel apart from the wisdom and power of God. Apart from the gospel preached, we do not find Jesus attractive. We cannot fathom that Jesus alone could never be enough until we are affected by the power of the gospel preached, until we have faith to believe and faith comes by hearing. If we try to find some clever scheme to make the gospel attractive or to make Jesus more palatable, we are simply wasting our time. Paul knows, he is completely convinced in his mind that the Corinthians think that his message and his methods are foolish and absurd. He even says that. But you know what? He's unaffected by it. If anything, it makes him dig his heels in even more. He doesn't sail by the compass of their desires or their expectations or what they think. He's sailing by the truth of what God has revealed to him. So rather than the unchanging spiritual state of man's soul and the unshifting character of God and the unalterable realities of the gospel being the guide instead of God's wisdom being the compass that you follow, We're left to our own devices, scheming to figure out how to reach the culture in a way that the culture prefers. And not much has changed really since Paul's day. I mean, Paul notes here, the people in Paul's day wanted signs and they desired wisdom. The people in our day, maybe they aren't looking for signs, some are. Maybe they aren't looking for wisdom, though some are. But generally speaking, the people in our communities and among our culture are more prone to want fun and games and loud and trendy and cool and clever and cutting edge. Those are the temptations that are out there. Or maybe for the more serious-minded, a real focus on the family or a concentration on kids or a trust in a mere theological system. I mean, we could go on and on. Paul knew what the Corinthians wanted, but Paul also knew what the Corinthians needed. He could have given so many Jews what they wanted. I mean, who better than Paul could have waxed eloquent among the the Jews and accomplished all that they desired? He could have saved himself from beatings and stonings and imprisonments. But he didn't. And the remarkable thing for us to note is that for Paul, his choices were life and death. And he still stuck to just preaching the gospel. I mean, for most of us, it's how to grow a healthy church and have well-behaved kids. For Paul, it was life and death, and he stuck to 
preaching Christ and Him crucified. It's exactly the way He said it. But we preach Christ crucified. I determined to know Him and Him crucified. Paul is completely convinced, overwhelmingly convinced, that the gospel alone is the wisdom and the power of God. So that no matter what Corinth wants, he gives them only Jesus. He's writing to them here, and he says that. When I came, I came with Christ alone. Jesus alone was and is and will be the wisdom and power of God. Jesus plus anything else, and especially Jesus minus anything at all, come closer to describing the ridiculousness of too many modern approaches. And the temptation as a result of being surrounded by this type of cultural Christianity, the temptation for us is strong, the temptation to cave. Paul had been beaten with rods, thrown in prison, mobs formed against him, followed along and badgered to the next destination, laughed at, doubted, mocked. Yet, Paul says to the beloved Corinthians upon regarding his arrival, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ. Just him and him crucified. He is enough, Paul exclaimed. Look again at chapter 2. When I came to you, I realized that there was no cleverness or wisdom that would be helpful in changing your hearts. I knew what would change your hearts, so I determined to bring nothing to you but Jesus. He only wanted what was best for them, so he gave them the only real hope for them, which was the gospel of God. I realized, Paul says, that this approach and this method, it appears weak, it appears vulnerable. I understand that. I was aware of my own insufficiency. I came in weakness, not in confident strength. I was fearful. I was trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Where did the power come from? The power was because Paul's message was Christ and Him crucified. The power was in the cross and what Christ had done in His life and in His death and in His resurrection. The church at Corinth, this New Testament church that is established, is established as a result of Paul's wise and careful approach. And the church at Corinth or our churches will not be built on the wisdom of men or the cleverness of gimmicks or the success of strategic methods, but on the power and wisdom of God alone. In order for us to be relative and not obsolete as Christians or as a church, we must be relative to God, first and foremost, and to man in the way that God's Word defines mankind. We have to give up on any notion that we must be relative to culture and its shiftiness. It's a moving target. Therefore, it lacks substance, like nailing jello to the wall. Especially the context that we're in now, things are shifting so quickly. And I suppose it's probably always been that way. I mean, I remember being a little bit younger and 
the more mature among us saying things like, man, it didn't used to be this way, and we didn't have to deal with all this when we were kids, and you know, now I'm one of those old fogies talking that way. For the most part, churches in our culture, Christianity in our culture, is in complete opposition to functioning like this. And what we hear are questions like, what is culture like around us? We must become like them and then we can reach them. Or if only we could blend in or slip into the culture and kind of sneak them the gospel, I'm sure they'll love our gospel and our God and maybe they'll even be nice to us along the way. We must avoid at all costs falling prey to the desire to outsmart God in some vain attempt to be wiser than the Apostle Paul in his approach. Why are we so tempted to rethink God's plan and adjust ourselves and our ministries and God's gospel according to the culture or ministry situations that we find ourselves in? I mean, we see that Paul going from Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth, wherever he went, he just preached Jesus. It is not the plan of God that men's schemes produce real knowledge of God, but it is the plan of God that we, as His servants, humble ourselves and trust in His wisdom rather than our own. Our approach, by and large, as churches, has attempted to be more clever than God over the past few decades. In our cleverness, we have strategized about how to reach people who don't want God by offering things other than God. We have strategized against God's revealed strategies of His Word. We've strategized against God Himself, as it were, and and it's still yet to work. Why doesn't it work? Because the approach has not been the wisdom and power of Christ. Because the foundation of the approach has been the wisdom and power of man. It's a strategy that responds to the needs of the day, beginning in the wrong place with the needs of the culture, and then adjusting God to meet those needs. It's not a strategy, it hasn't been for the most part, that looks at the character of God, the never-changing need of mankind, and the sufficiency of Christ crucified. But that's what it ought to be. And our efforts and our methods in ministry too often expose our lack of confidence in the power of the cross. If we were more confident that Christ was enough, we would be more resilient at following the plan and the method, the principles that God has laid out for us in His Word, of looking at the unshifting nature of God, the ongoing need of mankind, and the absolute sufficiency of Christ crucified, which would lead us then to proclaiming the cross and recognizing that that's where the power of the gospel is, in the proclamation of truth about who Jesus is. Wrapping up in some fashion. In light of who God is and what He's revealed to us and the culture in which we live, may God help us that our message, the message of our lives would be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May our manner be characterized by Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May our methods 
be determined by Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May our motive be fueled by Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Christ must be the center. When He is the center, He becomes everything. He is the infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, gracious, just, holy, the unchangeable I Am. He is God, one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit. He owes his existence to no one. The one who says, I am Jehovah, and besides me there is no Savior. He is God, and there is no other. There is no other name given under heaven or among men whereby we can be saved. He and he alone is the rock of ages. Angels bow down and worship him. Devils obey him. Saints love him. Sinners will bow to him. He and he alone is the author of creation, of providence, of redemption, and of glorification. He produced all things by his power. He fashioned them in his own wisdom. He supplies them by his bounty. He rules them by his authority. He orchestrates them according to his sovereign will. He is above all. In the glory of his nature, he will judge all according to his righteousness. Nothing, nothing can elude his all-seeing eye. None can escape the loving grasp of his hand. He is exalted above all and remains king forever. Christ, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is all-loving and the altogether lovely one. Determined to know this Christ and Him crucified. This glorious one who came to lay down His life for you. This one who shed His blood for your sin. This one who quenched God's wrath that was due you. This one that dealt with your unrighteousness in His death. This one in whose robes you are robed with forever and ever, the robe of everlasting righteousness. This one who, as your substitute, has secured your place as a child in the family of God forever and ever. May God help us to, along with the Apostle Apostle Paul, say, I determine to know Christ and this Christ crucified. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, that you have preserved it for us, provided it to us. We pray now, God, that you will call the tr- cause the truths as they are in Jesus to sink down deep into our souls, that every fiber of who we are would be affected for eternity's sake, that your gospel would save and that it would sanctify And that we would, as your people, put all our hope in you. That we would trust you and your word. And we would recognize as a result that the power of the cross is in Christ and him crucified. And we would live our lives accordingly. And we would arrange our affairs accordingly. And we would gather with your people and worship you accordingly. Hear our prayers, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.